Hey, deserving listeners. Two days ago, I published an episode in which I talked about grief theory. It was for patrons only. I went into detail on Freud, a little bit on Melanie Klein, a lot into the dual process and other kinds of issues. And so uh, listen to that episode. And in this episode, I'm going to answer emails about grief. So let's get into it. Uh, this first question is from superfan Louise. She writes, grief feels similar to depression, except for the way grief can come in intense waves when you least expect it. How is grief related to depression? Great question, Louise. Uh, it's complicated. It kind of depends on the definition of depression that we use and also how one understands depression and also the definition of grief and how one understands grief. These are constructs in psychology that they're the definite, we construct the definition and then we apply it. It's a model. Uh, it's a, it's a model of how to look at people and how to categorize people. Depression is a very varied thing. You know, there's a lot of different experiences that we will call depression and grief as well. There's a lot of different people who we would categorize as experiencing grief, grief, emotionality, grief, reactivity, who are very different from each other, right? So, of course, there's going to be some overlap. And categorically and diagnostically, if we were to use the diagnosis of complicated grief, there's a lot of comorbidity between complicated grief and depression. Some would say that uh, if you are depressed going through a, a complicated grief process, that the depressive symptoms are just a part of the complicated grief. Other people would say that they're different. So really, to answer your question, Louise, is that uh, you know, how is grief related to depression? Well, it depends on the definitions that you're using for both of those constructs and how you apply them and how you, how you assess them. What I will say is that for grief, when we lose something, when, when we have a, go through a loss, we will have a wide variety of emotions in, uh, potentially not everyone has the same emotions, but we all have the potential upon losing something, upon going through grief, to feel what we might call depression, meaning that we might be chronically sad, chronically unmotivated, chronically pessimistic, chronically uh, you know, difficulty getting out of bed, this kind of thing. But if it's longstanding and once the grief goes away, because, you know, grief... Typically, when someone's going through grief, it's very focused. Not always, but it usually is. Meaning that, let's say you go through a divorce, and a year later, you have that, you refer to that wave of emotion. Well, usually when you're having that wave of emotion, you're thinking about a particular thing. You know, it's, you're, you're feeling the, the loss, or, the, or the, you have this longing feeling, or you feel hurt that the loss happened, you're angry at the person for leaving you or something like that. With depression, typically what we're using that term for is when people are just kind of generally depressed and they might not have a thing that they're reacting to, if that makes any sense. But, you know, it really just depends. The, the other uh, distinction that I will say here is that typically for depressed individuals, people that we label as suffering from major depression is they lack motivation. Everything in life is, is meh. Nothing is pleasurable. And it's pretty much constant is that, that experience. 
with grief, you know, you might have moments of that, but that's not the dominant feeling of grief. Grief usually involves pain, longing, hopelessness, sadness, crying, wanting to talk about it, anger, you know, these kinds of typical grief experiences. And they're they're really different things. They get conflated, I think, because we avoid the whole conversation about grief and depression. And they just kind of get lumped into like negative experiences, if that makes any sense. But they're really quite different. Having said that, depending on your definition, they might be the same thing. (laughs) Uh, Superfan Jenna on the fan page writes, this is really raw for me and I only found out recently. How can I deal with anticipatory yet ambiguous grief of a therapist who might have cancer while also not wanting to make it about myself? Okay, Jenna, if I understand right, your therapist, you found out your therapist has cancer and you're feeling anticipatory yet ambiguous grief, meaning that you're, you're feeling feelings of, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my therapist maybe. And I, it's sort of ambiguous because I don't know if it's going to happen because maybe the cancer treatment will go fine. So I don't know if that's – I don't know if I would necessarily call that grief so much as as worry about losing someone. And how do you deal with that is to talk with your therapist about it <laughs> and, and, you know, open that box and talk about it. It's It's important to – to let that out and to, to, you know, good therapists will absolutely talk about. And I'm guessing if many of the clients know about the cancer that the therapist is talking with a lot of clients about that. The other thing I'll say is to just talk about it with whoever is supportive to continue, you know, grief in general is an active process. It's not a passive thing. We, it, well, I'll say it's both passive and active, meaning that it, it'll, as a, as a passive participant, the waves of emotion will overcome you. But to go through grief and to grieve is an active process. It's talking, it's thinking, it's creating art, it's getting angry, it's making meaning, it's getting support, it's all those kinds of things. So, you know, just continue to do that, Jenna. That would likely help. But of course, I can't know that without talking with your therapist. So you should be talking with your therapist about that. All right, this next comment on the fan page, Facebook fan fan page from Katie. And these were all compiled by Colin, by the way. A lot of, if you go to the Facebook fan page, this is where we ask a lot of questions. Uh, Katie says, "I I had a client pass away almost a year ago, and I still feel deeply impacted by this. How do people in the field handle grieving client deaths? So I might be a broken record with a lot of these answers, but grieve, uh, talk about it. You had a client die. That is a tremendous loss. And uh, because we have disenfranchised grief, as I talked about in the last episode, um, it's probable, Katie, that you feel like you don't have the right to grieve. It, It wouldn't be uncommon for you not to have been invited to the funeral or to not be invited to the family gatherings when they talked about the person who passed away. I don't know, but it, it seems quite clear that for optimal grief process to occur emotionally and socially, we need to do it together. We clearly see this across cultures across the world where when someone dies, all the loved ones get together and do various different things. 
whether it's active grieving of the person who died or just hanging out, just being with them, just being with the people who loved that person, sharing stories, crying, supporting each other, ceremonies, these kinds of things. And Katie, as as a therapist, uh, it's possible you just weren't involved in any of that stuff. So you have to create it yourself, which means that, you know, you're going to talk about it. It, it might be weird and maybe not even allowed given your professional situation for you to reach out to the family or whatever, but there's plenty you can do on your own, which me, you know, like I said, grief is an active process. You do it. You don't just sit there and wait for it to end. Typically you have to do things to, to make it real and to, your think of it think of grief feelings in part the similar to that of like a thirsty feeling when we feel thirsty it's telling us we have to go get water you don't just sit there and go like oh i'm experiencing thirst how do i get over my thirst well grief is the same way when we feel grief there are two different things that i think are happening fundamentally one is is that it's telling you go find that thing go find that person go find that thing that you lost and so on one hand, if, if we can, you know, reacquire the thing, then the grief feelings, the feelings of loss will motivate us to, to notice that that thing was needed by us. And then we try to go get it. If that thing is unattainable, like in the case of, of death, then it motivates us to find something to replace it in essence. Now, this can take many different forms, right? We can go to religion. We can reconnect with the person in the afterlife. We can reconnect with their, we can connect with their family. We can connect with people around us that provide us with the meaning and the love and the attachments that that loss took away from us. Maybe maybe for you, Katie, what this, what this, what these grief, fe- listen to the grief feelings, I guess is the thing. What are they trying to tell you? Maybe they're trying to tell you to be more connected to your clients currently. Maybe they're trying to tell you to be less connected to your clients currently. I don't know, but it's an active process. Listen to your body and move with it. Don't just sit there and go, okay, well, I'm experiencing grief about a client that died a year ago. It's, I'm still impacted by it when is this going to be over? You know, that, that is typically not going to work. <laughs> and if anything, it'll make it worse because it just builds power. Um, you also ask here, moreover, when this happened, I was essentially given the EAP phone number and told this is just part of the job. What are agencies, supervisors supposed to do surrounding a client's death? End of, end of question. My goodness, Katie, yikes. So just to kind of interpret these words here, uh, Katie's saying, my client died. I went to my supervisor and my colleagues, and they, they didn't want to talk with her about it. And they just gave the employment assistance program phone number, which essentially is like, hey, you know, go talk with a therapist about it, which, of course, you know, can be great. And EAP programs will typically involve like three sessions kind of a thing. Anyway, uh, yeah, that is awful. Any, I don't know, intelligent supervisor, because I've had this happen with me as a, you know, I've, as a supervisor, I've had supervisees who will lose clients for sure. And I consider it 
my job and my moral responsibility to mentor that person, that trainee or that supervisee around that uh, issue. Now, sometimes I'm not always on the ball, but I hope usually I am. The problem is, is that we have a lot of supervisors who just don't know that they're supposed to do that. And there's also this notion in mental health and other kinds of related professions like the medical profession that, well, this is just a part of your job and you're just supposed to, you're just supposed to deal with it, which is not uh, borne out in the data. Uh, people at professional jobs do not somehow turn off their emotional centers. Uh, so we've seen this at with emergency medical people, you know, first responders. They're human beings. And of course they are. And they're going to have emotional reactions. And you had an emotional reaction. Part of the fact that you might still be suffering is because not only did you experience a loss that was difficult, but everyone around you made you feel like there was something wrong with you. And you were just left shaming yourself. And if you were given a chance to grieve with people right away and people heard you and, and reached out to you, this, you know, the, the impact could have been uh, different and more positive in a way. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from a grief like that. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, Carrie says, my brother completed suicide five years ago. I've been following support groups on Facebook for people like me who have lost loved ones. I have been too scared to actually attend a group in person. I am, t I am so afraid that it will just be so heavy and emotionally overwhelming. I feel like I would feel worse bringing up everything and listening to everyone else's pain. Right now, I don't think it's really even possible to truly heal ever. How can grief groups help you heal? End of question. Well, Carrie, first off, I'm really sorry about your loss. Suicide is a very particular way of losing people and will often add factors that can contribute to the development of complicated grief. When, when people die in typical ways, they are 82 years old and they've had a heart attack or a stroke and, and there's a, a, a meaning that is attributed to that, that it feels like, well, they had a good run, that kind of thing. I'm not saying 82 is a wonderful time to die, but I'm just saying that it's a common narrative in terms of the way it feels. It also will have a ramp up to it, right? Common, you know, often best case scenario, people have time to think, oh, death might be around the corner for me. Death might be around the corner for my loved one. And it feels like a natural part of life when it's like that. It just feels like, well, everyone eventually dies. And I guess it's, it's that time. I'm not saying everyone deals with this, it this way, but the, the typical way of dying provides humans the opportunity to adjust and to develop a non-complicated narrative of the loss. When there's a suicide, all that is thrown out the window because it didn't need to happen usually, right? It doesn't feel like a natural way of going. And they did it to themselves. And what did you do to help? You know, if you were close to, if you're ever close to someone who completed a suicide, 
it is very hard not to blame yourself, even if you kind of know that it wasn't your fault. And maybe even you did a lot to, to, to stop it. But it's really hard to to go to bed at night saying, well, I did everything I could have done, because there's usually something you could have done more, right? Now, of course, all that self-blame is universal, but or almost universal, but usually not justified. <laughs> uh, so that and also in in the complicating factor is that if we learn about how the person died oftentimes we will replay that visual in our minds for the rest of our lives we'll just we'll just see the vision of the suicide you know how we believe it might have played out some people even find the body right and that image will be burnt to their brain so that's a trauma that that is a traumatic memory that is even though you weren't there, but it's a traumatic memory that is in your mind. And so all these things are, are connected to the grief and, and often will complicate the grief, meaning that the pain will not go away with time and that it, it's hard to feel the feelings necessary or to have the conversations necessary to heal. And for you, Carrie, you're, you, it's a part of you wants to talk about, a part of you wants to heal and to share your experiences and you're you're joining these support groups on Facebook and you're you know getting close but then you're 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 thinking oh man if i if i go the full mile here that means i'm going to hear a lot of people's stories and i'm going to start sharing and i don't feel like i'm ready for that it feels too painful to me it feels overwhelming to me and okay you know obviously you know i my advice for all this is to go to a therapist and carry what I don't, it doesn't sound like you're with a therapist. So you can go to a therapist and you could say, look, I have this huge thing in my life that I don't want to talk about right away. I just want to talk about other things or I want to talk about talking about something, but I I want to take my time because I don't want to be overwhelmed. You can tell a therapist that and good therapists will say, oh, totally. I don't want to traumatize you by going too fast. And so they will, they'll work with you on that. And that's something that you can absolutely do. So um, I would recommend doing that for sure. Cause uh, I can't imagine anyone having a brother complete suicide and not go to therapy, not need at least six months of therapy after that. I just can't imagine given the way our society deals with death and suicide, how shameful that's the other thing is like when you're, if your brother died of cancer or something, you could tell everyone, right? You could just be like, oh, my brother died. How did he die? Oh, it was cancer. And it, you wouldn't be ashamed. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no shame around that. Well, there might be some shames around some cancers. Like, well, is it lung cancer? Did he smoke? You know, we do all sorts of stupid things to ourselves. But when it's suicide, it complicates things because people, do you tell people? What do people think of that? Do they think your brother is weak? Do they literally th- do they literally think your brother is in hell because he sinned against God by by killing himself? Uh, there's all just all just sorts of issues. Do they blame you? Like, well, if your brother died by suicide, you know, how come you weren't there for him? You know, these kinds of things. So that's another issue. But my point is, is that uh, I can't imagine not going to therapy. That's that's pretty important. Um, and talking about it with other people who have been through exactly what I, I might even recommend 
So here's here's what I'm here's what I'm going to recommend, Carrie. One, obviously, get a therapist. Two, is find a group of people, maybe on Facebook, that lost family members to suicide, and then just email one of the people in the group and just tell them what you just told me, and just start to have conversations. Someone who's been through what you've been through, hopefully, will understand what you're going through. And we'll know how to respond. And because I'm, I'm guessing that if you can feel a little bit of trust in the process, like tell the group, say, I would love to talk with y'all, but if I get overwhelmed, I'm going to bounce. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like Carrie, for you, it's like this all or nothing thing. You're thinking, if I dive into this group and I become overwhelmed, I won't, I'll be trapped. But if you you could set it up so you're not trapped, so you could, you know, I don't know if this is obviously you go to a therapist about this, but you know, say you have one of these groups, and I don't know how this is affected by the lockdown, but you you sit on the outskirts, and everyone understands that you're close to the door, <laughs> and if you get kind of overwhelmed, like a you know a four out of ten, then you're just going to go home, and you'll come back the next time for maybe a little bit longer, you know, like you you shouldn't have to be scared of the process. You should have power. The analogy I'll give is that um, I have medical anxiety. I've talked about this before and my body does not react well. My, my conscious mind understands everything's fine, but my body does not like it. (laughs) My, my body is like, no, 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 do not cut into me. Don't give me a shot. Don't, you know, don't give me an IV, all these kinds of things. My mind is like, it's fine. This is good for me. I I want, I I welcome it, but my body doesn't like it. So I learned a long time ago that in order for me to go through those medical procedures, I need to have power over the ability to to put an end to it. So if, if, you know, there, I was having mouth surgery, I don't know, 20 years ago. And during the, the procedure, I was beginning to freak out. I was beginning to pass out, um, have a vasovagal reaction. And so I waved my arms and I worked this all out with the surgeon. And I said, everyone stop, get out of my mouth. And, you know, so they all pulled out of my mouth. And given that I had that power, my body was like, okay, you know what? Push comes to shove. We're going to push these people away and, and I'll be able to get untrapped. You know, I'll be get when I want people out of my mouth, then I'm going to get them out of my mouth. And so that helped. You know, it happened like, I don't know, three or four times during the procedure. I I just waved everyone off (laughs) and it made a 20 minute procedure into an hour and a half, but you know, screw it. (laughs) They're just going to have to deal with me. And, you know, for you, Carrie, maybe that's, maybe that's part of the issue of just like that you don't want to impose your issues on other people, but there are people out there that understand You know, a lot of people, pretty much anyone who's lost someone to suicide will understand, I'm guessing. I don't know that for sure, but anyway. So I hope that helps. Let's move on to another email. All right, this next question is from Tracy from the Facebook fan page. She writes, I think grief may be what I'm feeling this year because of the holidays. I don't talk to my family. I don't have a significant other or kids. Friends are few and far between. It gets depressing seeing what other folks have that I don't. I have some bad holidays that I'd rather not remember from my past. 
Do you have any tips for coping with painful annual events or holidays beyond go out and make some new f- memories? End of question. Yeah, Tracy, I mean, the, the, I'm sorry you're going through that. Uh, the very general tips, obviously, would be going to therapy. And I know it might sound like a broken record, but uh, I, I think it's really a good thing to remind people of. <laughs> so my tip is, is to go to therapy, not because I'm trying to avoid the question, but I really think it would help, Tracy. Anyway, the other thing is, is you know, the, I'll, I always get this question and it always worries me. You know, we've had a couple other questions ask it in this way. You know, how do I deal with? How do I cope with? How do I move on? How do I? That's not a paradigm that I recommend having. I consider it to be potentially wrongheaded. I don't know what you mean by coping, but typically what what people are meaning by coping is, I have these feelings that I think I shouldn't have. How do I stop having those feelings? And I get it, but that's not usually a right-headed way of thinking. A different way of thinking that I think is right-headed is listen to your feelings. What are your feelings telling you is the thing. Emotions are our friends. They are here to tell us. In the same way that thirst is our friend because it tells us to drink water, hunger is our friend usually because it tells us that we need to eat, uh, the, the, the emotion that we feel when we want to stretch, you know, that feeling when you just, oh, I got to stretch my bones. Well, those are feelings and grief and sadness and loneliness. These are feelings. Why do we have them? Well, it's very clear to me that we evolved all of our feelings for survival. We are social creatures. Why are we social creatures? Well, we are more likely to survive and procreate. Those are the two things mainly involved in evolution, right? And so we were selected for over millions and millions of years for particular emotions to happen under particular circumstances. When we are without water for a particular amount of time, the feeling, the need for water will increase in us. When we are without social contact for a long period of time, we will have a desperation for closeness and attachment. And when we feel like we can't get it, whether it, you know, if we can't get water, what happens? We get depressed. That, that's what happens to us. We, and, and why do we do that? Well, there's a number of different hypotheses, but the one that I adhere to, uh, and it's just an hypothesis, it's hard to know if it applies to all situations, but it relates to Darwin and Freud and Bowlby, this notion that uh, we as, as a species, if you think back to when we were, and I talked about this in the last episode, I believe, when we were in our uh, more natural state, if you will, 100,000 years ago, we were in small tribes of about 100 people. And when we were thirsty, then we got water. When we needed to stretch, we stretched. When we uh, needed food, we had a feeling of hunger. And when we were alone, so all those things are pretty obvious in terms of why we have those emotions, right? Because we need water to live. If, if you don't drink water enough time, you know, with enough frequency, you will die. If you don't get enough calories in your system, you will die. And if you are alone, you will die. I want everyone to understand that, that l- being alone in the olden times meant you were going to die. Now, in today's world, you will not die. 
Why? Because predators aren't going to eat you in all likelihood. So being alone today is not a rational threat. We absolutely need calories and we absolutely need water, right? So that still is with us. So when it comes to thirst and hunger, for the most part, we still understand that those feelings, we don't pathologize them. We're like, yeah, well, when you're thirsty, you drink water. That's fine. But somehow when you're lonely, we're just like, well, you need to cope with that. You need to get over it. Why are you so dependent? This kind of thing. Because our society is set up to make us extremely lonely. Get a bigger car just for yourself. I mean, we literally have lanes on the road that are practically empty for people who are traveling with more than one person in the car. That means like 90 plus percent of people on the highway, they're by themselves. Now, I'm not saying you're supposed to commute with other people. I'm just saying it's emblematic of, of just how isolated we are. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. And so, Tracy, you know, you say you don't talk to your family, you don't have a significant other, you don't have kids, friends are few and far between, and you're like, it gets depressing at the holidays. How do I cope with that? Well, I mean, <laughs> how do you cope with thirst when you are thirsty? You drink water. Now, I'm not saying that getting friends is easy and you know, this is why I'm doing various different investigations in, into loneliness. And I'm, I'm going to start to, uh, I have some time this month, so I'm going to start tackling that topic again. And I've been, you know, mulling over loneliness a lot over the past, I don't know, year or two. And I've come to the conclusion that I think what I need to do in order to really understand loneliness is to talk to people who, ex- who are experiencing loneliness. And so that's what I'm going to do. Because honestly, the internet is not useful when it comes to loneliness, in my opinion. And the uh, clinical world, the research world, isn't very good either. I mean, there are components of loneliness that are addressed in the research literature, but not comprehensively. There are so many different paths to loneliness and so many different barriers that I feel like research literature just doesn't get at or can't get at or something. And so I feel like I just... I feel like I'm on a frontier or something. Now, I'm also reading some books that directly relate to loneliness and and they're helpful, but I also feel like it's, you know, there are very intelligent, wonderful, charming individuals who are lonely chronically and have tried all the different tips and and done it for years and they're still lonely and I'm like what's going on? You know, it it it's a weird thing. So Tracy, the fact that you know you're you're having painful annual events uh, around the holidays because you have holidays that weren't great for you in the past, and when we're alone during the holidays, it it's much more painful, right? Because if you're lonely on some random week in April, then you're like, well, you know, whatever. But being alone at the holidays, being alone on Christmas or whatever holidays on New Year's Eve or whatever, you just know like there's all these other people, or you have this idea, I guess, that there's all these other people spending time with each other, right? And it just becomes so much more in sharp relief, right? The, the loneliness. So I, I would say feel the feelings and don't cope. <laughs> Allow yourself to feel the feelings. Get creative with the feelings, Listen to the feelings. What are they telling you? 
I don't know the solution to your loneliness, Tracy. I don't. I don't know the solution to you making you know new memories that are supposed to be good. Yeah, I I don't. There is, there's so many paths to loneliness that uh, even if I knew you extremely well, I still wouldn't necessarily know the solution. I, and I'm not going to say that, but but understand that in all likelihood, your body is trying to tell you something. In the same way that when you need to get up and stretch your body is trying to tell you something and i'm not saying it's easy as just standing up and stretching but i am saying it 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 can help to listen to that and see like well what is it what's my body trying to tell me anyway let's move on but first let's take a break Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist. But I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. If you didn't know this, we are having a YouTube live show, me and Umberto and Colin, on Saturday, this Saturday, December 19th, 2020. Colin is going to be doing kind of like a game show with me and Umberto, so you can go to YouTube this Saturday, 4 p.m. Seattle time, and it should be fun. And it might be the first of many of these little live events that we're going to do. And I really hope that all y'all on the audio podcast side can join us. All right, this next question is from Amna from the fan page. She writes, my friend lost her father and she still can't function without him. Three years ago, she lost her father. I don't pretend to understand how she feels. I try to listen and be there for her, but I also feel like I can't be helpful. How can we be there for others who are grieving when we haven't experienced that kind of grief ourselves. How does this work in a therapeutic setting when you haven't experienced what your client has? All right, so there's a number of different things to say here. So first off, you're saying your friend lost her father three years ago, and she still can't function without him. And you're saying, I don't pretend to understand how she feels. I try to listen and be there for her, but I also feel like I can't be helpful. Well, it's hard to know what's best for your friend, Amna, but you're listening, which is great. And it's possible that your friend needs the one sort of metaphor that I think about with these sort of situations is that when let's just say for the sake of argument, your friend lost your father and your friend was very close to her father and she has a thousand points of grief that she has to spend. Okay. So just think about it in terms of points. She, upon getting experiencing that loss, she now acquires a thousand grief points that she has to spend. And 
She does a lot of things to spend the grief points. She thinks about her father for an hour and she spends three grief points. She talks to you and cries and is in utter despair and she spends seven grief points. Then ever so slowly, she spends those points. And the problem is no one knows how many points they acquire upon having a loss. So upon the loss, you might think as a friend that she only had 350 points. And you're like, she spent a lot of points in the past three years. I don't understand why there are still points left to spend. How, how does she have so many more points in her bank account? It's been three years. Well, it might just be a factor of you just don't know how many points she has. And she doesn't either. She might have 10,000 points. She might not ever spend the points by the time she passes away from this planet. But you don't know. But the, the point is, is that she clearly still has points left to spend. She's still talking about it with you and probably others. And you're listening. And you're sitting there thinking, I've been listening for three years. And it's still happening. And I feel powerless. And I feel helpless. Because I've been trying to help. But she's still suffering. Well, that potentially, I don't know, because I have to assess her, that potentially is, you know, a wrong-headed way of thinking um, in that it's like, well, she should be over it by now. Well, maybe she has, you know, a thousand points that she acquired and she's only spent, say, 550 of those points. And, and every time you listen, she spends a little bit more of those points. That's just one way to think about it as a friend for someone like this. The reason why I provide this metaphor is that it can provide some hope of like, well, I'm doing something. I'm doing my part. I'm helping. And when it's over, it'll be over. And it's clearly not over yet because there's a mindset that people will fall into of just like, it's been three years. I feel like she's spinning her wheels. People will say this even about people going through grief. They'll be like, I feel like she's holding on to the grief. And although sometimes that might be an accurate conceptualization, it's usually not accurate. So uh, she lost her father three years ago. That's a big deal, losing your father. And she can't function without him. Now, of course, if she can't function after three years, I don't know what that means exactly, but I could imagine what that means. It sounds like complicated grief. And obviously going to a therapist who specializes, specializes in grief would be um, would be important. So if you, so I guess if you want to be extra helpful would be to, you know, recommend that she talk to a therapist and you, you don't want to be like, don't talk to me, talk to a therapist, be like, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to be here for you. Um, you also ask, you know, how can you be there for others who are grieving when we haven't experienced that kind of grief ourselves? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I don't know, Amna, but I would suspect you have experienced some losses, and connecting with those losses yourself might help. But let's say you haven't experienced any losses or at least any significant ones. Just observe, you know, just just watch what is your friend going through and take note of like, oh, I guess that's what grief is. And one day I'm going to have that too, probably. That's what if you're just being the feeling of being stuck in the pain and the despair and the hopelessness and the the depression, I guess that's what, I guess that's what loss is. So, uh, you know, how can you be there for others? Well, 
observe what it's like for them and, and go, okay, well, I guess that that's what grief is. And, and I'll be there in the way that they want me to be there in the way that I have capacity for. Now I'm not saying I'm not, you have to sacrifice yourself on the altar of her grief, but uh, so, so if you find yourself suffering too much as a result of having to sit with her, then obviously you're allowed to have your own self-preservation in that, whatever that looks like. You also ask, how does this work in the therapeutic setting when you haven't experienced what your client has? So, you know, you have a therapist who hasn't experienced that kind of loss and they have a client. It's, you know, the same, same thing. You listen to stories and you observe. Uh, we all understand what suffering is, I hope. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean I, I, it sucks that we all understand what suffering is. So, you know, for uh, if you're really trying to find an analogy to yourself, Amna, uh, it, have you never had a pet die? Have you never been broken up with? Have you never had a friend that moved across the country and you, you miss them? Have you never had a political candidate lose an election. You know, we've all had losses in our life. So I, I may be just looking to that if you want to relate. All right, this next email is from Lisa on the fan page. She, she writes, My son died October 31st of this year. We had pediatric hospice, so it wasn't unexpected. However, he has siblings. It seems that all of us are feeling different things at the same time, I can find group I can find grief support groups virtually but none of them include children. How do I deal with my grief and support them in their grief? End of question. Well the first thing I'll say is my god Lisa. <sighs> Even though it was not unexpected, that has got to be rough. I mean the whole thing. I'm just so sorry for you and your family to to lose a son and for your children to lose their brother Ugh, that is just um that's heartbreaking um so how do you deal with the grief and support your children in their grief um well so the thing that i'll say there's a lot of different things i say one one thing i'll say is feeling different feelings is common when a family experiences a loss like this, it's almost universal that everyone is going to be feeling different things at different times. So if you remember in the last episode, I talked about the dual process model of grief that is empirically supported, that people will oscillate between the grief stance and the rebuilding stance. So you're in times your body wants to grieve and feel and think and talk and be sad and be depressed and be angry and reminisce. And then your body other times will oscillate to rebuilding and moving on, not thinking about it, trying to enjoy your life, making meaning, uh, finding other attachments, these kinds of things. And the chance that everyone in a family is going to sync up on those uh, oscillations isn't very probable. So it it gets real messy. Um, So that's common. The other thing I'll say is you can't find any virtual grief support groups for children. Uh, If I don't know, but if that's true, that's awful. And I'm sorry you're going through that. It's really unfortunate. 
So the complicating factor here is that you have two main roles in this scenario. One, you have a role as a griever. You lost a son and you have a role as a as a sufferer, as someone who is suffering from the loss of your son. The other role is that you are the parent of other people who are grieving. You know, as you say, you know, he lost he had siblings. He has siblings and and I'm now responsible for their care and I'm their leader in a lot of ways, right? So that complicates things quite a bit. It would be hard anyway, but it complicates things. So some tips, well, obviously family therapy. And again, I hate to be like a broken record. I have worked with families who have lost children and family therapy is, it can be very helpful. Uh, Another tip is to create ceremonies. This is very important. And I don't know what society you're in, Lisa, but in my neck of the woods in Seattle, we we keep dropping ceremonies. We, we we sometimes add ceremonies, you know, like we have ceremonies for kids now where on the first day of first grade, you know, you post a picture on Facebook of your kid going to first grade. Like that's a new ceremony. But when it comes to death, we still haven't really wrestled with the fact that we gave up so many ceremonies when we gave up a traditional religion and this kind of thing. And we need, we need it. We need ceremony around death. It's very important. It's one of the oldest things that humans have done. When we find archaeological digs, one of the things we find in early humans from you know, thousands of years ago is ceremony around death, that we would bury our loved ones with flowers and other kinds of things. And so it's, it's in our bones. It's very important. And so families going through a loss like this might benefit emotionally and spiritually from ceremonies, like telling stories. You you could say that at uh, your son's birthday or at holidays or every Sunday or whenever it just occurs to you that you're going to tell stories about him. They're all going to sit in a circle and everyone's going to take turns telling a story, something like that. Drawing pictures. Obviously, religion. If you are religious – how do you incorporate that into your family's process of the grief? Going to the grave or going to an important site as a family. You know, once a month you go to where you spread the ashes or whatever, or you go to your son's favorite um, restaurant and you all eat there. Maybe that's something you do. It's like, hey, oh, he loved Dairy Queen. And so we all go there and we, every, you know, once a month, we always make sure we go there and, and we just know as a family, and it brings a tear to my eye, just thinking about your family. Um, we all know as a family that we are going here purposely in memory to celebrate um, our family member. That he is looking down on us right now and seeing us go to this restaurant and he, he's smiling, seeing us enjoying ourselves. But he knows that we're here because of him. You can also have an altar in the house. Um, A lot of Asians uh, have wonderful traditions around this where if someone dies, they'll create a corner in the house with a picture of the deceased person and little offerings to that person. Also, there's this idea of lasting bonds 
that is often stigmatized in American society, but very important for people where when we lose someone, we hold on to them in physical ways. Like we might have an altar for them, or we might keep their bedroom the same for a while, or we might keep their, their coats in the closet, or we might make a pillowcase with their picture on it, or we might plant a tree in the front yard. Th- these kinds of things are very important to us and, and can help a family to feel the feelings and to bond around it. Think of a loss like this as a crossroads for a family where if things aren't dealt with in a loving way between the family members, this will push you apart. But if you do this in a way that is intentional and loving and acknowledging and flexible, then there's a possibility as a family you'll be closer after afterwards. And wouldn't that be a great honor to his death is if your family was even closer and more loving and more wise that's post-traumatic growth. Another thing you could do, just you know, just a tip that you can talk with a family therapist about, is asking questions. Keep him a part of your family. You know, don't make him taboo. Ask questions like, "Hey, did you ever, you know, ask one of your kids like, did you ever, did you guys ever lie to me about anything? <laughs> You're not in trouble. But I'm just, I don't know, it just occurred to me that maybe you and your brother might have had a uh, like you tricked me <laughs> or, Hey, uh, you know, what was your favorite thing about your brother? Or, Hey, do you remember that time when we went to the lake and you and your, you and your brother went out in that boat? Did you catch any fish? I, I don't remember. You know, one of the things that families will do is they will, because of their pain and because they don't know what to do, they'll just make people taboo. They'll just be like, look, let's just agree to never, talk about that person again because we don't know what to do with it. That's not usually a good thing. Um, also, allow some family members to rebuild. You know, remember the dual process where you grieve, you oscillate between grieving and rebuilding. For some people, particularly kids, they it's not uncommon for kids to have a rebuilding phase that lasts five years. It's not uncommon for like a 10-year-old to enter the rebuilding phase and not really grieve until they're 22 years old or by, or maybe when they reach the age of their brother, that kind of thing. So now it's not universal by any means. And plenty of kids, if given a chance, will absolutely grieve and oscillate in a very typical way. But the point I'm making is that if everyone's feeling different feelings and, and you're watching one of your kids not really talk about it that much, it might not necessarily mean a bad thing. A lot of times what families will do is they'll look to the kids and they'll be like, hey, we, you know, Johnny is crying occasionally, but Jen- Jennifer, she hasn't cried at all. And I think something, something's broken in her. Not necessarily. Uh, she might need some attention, but it might also just be where she needs to be for a while. And that's okay. Also, the other thing, Lisa, is tell the people what you need. Like, you're at the top of a pyramid, but that doesn't mean you're alone. You can reach out to other people, you know, reach out to people, peers, and other family members to support you while you're supporting your kids. The other thing, the last thing I'll, the last thing I'll say is to model how to grieve. 
this is this is actually maybe the key thing for every parent going through something like this is to show your kids how one grieves in the same way that when we teach kids how to drive you know you're you're teaching your children how to drive a car from the minute they're born when your child is 7 years old they're subtly watching how you drive a car they're watching how you react to other drivers they're watching how you react to stress they're watching how you signal you know that they're watching how you don't look at your cell phone when you're driving and uh so ki- you know kids are watching us my my point about the driving thing is by the time kids actually sit down in front of a steering wheel and learn how to drive they've already learned a lot from you and kids are always learning from us they literally learn our language <laughs> they learn whatever language you speak not because they take classes in your language but because they just watch you very intently and we can teach our kids how to grieve and we should teach our kids how to grieve and if we are all busted up about grief and shameful and we treat it like a taboo then our kids are going to do that but if we're open and flexible and messy and non-self-shaming and um, you know uh, vulnerable if we do that then our kids will do it too so when you have the need to cry just start crying you're driving down the road you get reminded of him you start bawling and your kids are in the car and you just look to your kids you're just like kids i'm just thinking about your brother and I'm okay, but sometimes I just feel like I need to cry about him. And uh, you don't have to take care of me, but I sure would like a hug when we stop the car. Uh, you know, things like that. Or you sit in the living room and you look at pictures of him. And, and you call your friend and you just start talking about your son to your friend. Now, again, you're not just a parent of grievers. You are a griever yourself. So you have to take care of yourself too, Lisa. You have to make sure that you're ready for this sort of work. You know, don't just focus on modeling because you have your own, you know, spiritual health that you need to take care of as well. So if if modeling is too much for you, then obviously, you know, that's, that's sort of the icing on the cake. Um, maybe it's one of those things like, in an airplane that's depressurized, you put the oxygen on yourself, you put the oxygen on your kids. You need to take care of yourself with this grief first. Then you have the ability to take care of your kids. But most of all, Lisa, like I said, I'm just really sorry that happened to you. I mean, October 31st, that was, that was just like a month and a half ago. I'm just so sorry that that happened. And I, I hope that on the fan page, people are supporting you. I'm guessing that they are because they're very nice people. All right. This next question is from Van. They write, how do you deal with grief that's not about death, especially when it comes up in unexpected places? Um, well, the same way you deal with any other kind of loss. And loss that creates grief, a lot of it is not around death. And I talked about this in the last episode, that we tend to look at grief and loss only as it applies to death, but we don't recognize or acknowledge the grief that occurs around divorce or breakups. You know, you date someone for a month and they dump you and you have feelings for three years. We're like, oh, that's weird. You know, you're holding on. You're not, you're dwelling on the past. No. (laughs) Empirical science shows that plenty of people have 
ongoing grief reactivity to all sorts of losses. And it's hard to determine a ranking order of losses. You know, we, we all have this sort of notion in our mind of just like, well, there are the most severe losses, like the death of a child. And then, so that's on one end of the spectrum. So death of a child is on the severe end of the spectrum. And then on the the less severe end of the spectrum, we have like a breakup with someone in high school that you only dated for a week or something like that. So, and then everything's in between. So most of us have this kind of ranking system, but we need to throw that out. That is ridiculous because just knowing what sort of loss it was this is a very bad way of predicting how much feelings you're you're going to have or someone else is going to have. So, and I talked about this last episode, there's too many other factors that will contribute to grief. And and I'll just rattle off the top of my head. One, how many how much loss have you experienced prior to that loss? So, if you've lost lots of things, and then you have a tiny loss, but it's like the hundredth loss that you've experienced, then that hundredth loss might feel very, very bad. Uh, someone could die very close to you, a family member could die, but you could have expected it and it, it could have, you could have known it was going to happen over the past 10 years. Now, I will say that when my grandmother died at the age of 101 a few years ago, I had been preparing for her death for 15 years. She talked to me 15 years before she died. She said, so at my funeral, I want you to sing the following songs. I want you to sing um, the song from Dr. Zhivago, uh, Laura, my love, da, 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 da. And I also want you to sing um, uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And so I was like, oh, okay. And I started practicing those songs because at the time she was, you know, in her late 80s. And I thought, well, you know, any day now, really. But she lived until she was 101. So I was practicing those songs <laughs> every, you know, every so often for all that time. And uh, I got pretty good at them. <laughs> uh, so my point is, is that every time I had a birthday with her, I thought, well, this might be the last birthday. Every time I saw her, I thought, well, this might be the last time I see her. Every time we had a family reunion, I thought, well, you know, we might have another. Me and my cousin, we call them natural family reunions because it's when someone dies in the family, it's it's a family reunion. <laughs> and so I thought, I thought, you know what? When my grandma dies, which, you know, it can't be that long from now. She's 100 years old now. Can't be that long from now. I'm I'm guessing it won't I won't sting that much because it I've already grieved so much already and I feel like I'm I'm ready to say goodbye and I and she's super religious and I know she's happy to go and she's lost everyone that she, almost everyone that she knows including one of her sons that has died and so uh I thought you know this loss should be fine it wasn't fine <laughs> It was, I mean, it probably was easier to cope with, but it wasn't easy. I, w I would not put it that way. You would think, well, she's 101. You should be happy she lasted that long. She's super religious. If anyone's going to heaven, it's her. Um, you know, uh, she had dementia. 
and she wasn't entirely there. You know, she, she was pretty sharp, but at the same time, she wasn't, she wasn't really the way she was, you know, 10 years prior. And you just think, well, you know, it should be easy. It's not easy. Anyway, so wait, what was your question, Van? <laughs> How do you deal with grief that's not about death? Oh, so my point is, is that there are so many different factors. How sudden was it? How close were you to that person? Whether it was death or breakup or loss of a job or moving across the country or losing a political race or not getting the job that you were really hoping for, having to give up a career, losing the ability to be mobile, having back pain. A lot of people have chronic back pain and that you grieve that as well because you, you now have to deal with, holy crap, I'm now one of those people that has to deal with chronic back pain for the rest of my life. I'm grieving the loss of not feeling pain. Before this back pain, I didn't feel chronic pain. And now I have to grieve the loss of ever having that back, maybe. You know? I have to grieve the loss of a of an unpainful back. So there's all sorts of grief feelings and, and losses that we will go through. So how do you deal with grief that's not about death? You deal with it the same way you deal with about death. We oscillate naturally. We listen to our body. We talk about it when we want to talk about it. We feel the feelings when our body wants to feel the feelings. We get support when we need the support. We get creative with the loss, whether it's through art or something else. And when we want to rebuild, we rebuild. And we get angry when we want to get angry. And we feel despair when we want to feel despair. And we talk about the despair when, when we feel it. And then you also ask, how, how can you recognize it when it feels like another emotion? How can you recognize it? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question, Ben. Uh, here's an email. An anonymous listener says, I want to move on from someone that I dated, but I'm afraid if I open myself up, then I'll, then I'll trust too easily again. When he left me, I convinced myself that I not only deserved it, but that no one will ever be able to love me again. He said that I was just too complicated. Okay, so this anonymous listener is saying that she wants to move on. She was broken up with. And after, and this was uh, a while back ago, going on, I think I might need to grieve. My relationship with this guy only lasted a month. But it's been three years since he moved on with another girl, and I'm still in pain it's been three years now, and I have nights where I think I'm crying about life stress, but then it will suddenly become crying about him. I was wondering if you could give me some advice on working through delayed grief over a romantic relationship. End of email. Yeah, well, it's hard to say, anonymous listener. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to assess you particularly, but here are some possible conceptualizations. One way of looking at it is just normal grief. Like I've been talking about, you dated the person for a month, and three years later, you're still in pain. That's not weird. <laughs> you know, it's a, it can be a very normal thing. It's very human uh, for that to happen. It's very human to cry about past relationships, even if they were very short. The other conceptualization you could have is that you haven't attached to anyone else after him, and he's the last attachment that you had. You, you say that you've convinced yourself that you deserved to be dumped and that no one else will love you. Well, so it's possible that when you're when you're crying about him, it's not necessarily him that you're 
grieving, but you're, you're grieving the notion that you're lovable. When you were with them, you probably had this notion like, maybe I'm lovable. Maybe I deserve love. Maybe, maybe someone can love me. And then when he broke up with you, you created a narrative that no one will love you and that you don't deserve love. And so you're going to cry about that. And you're going to be like, oh, I wish I had him back. But really what you might be crying about is you wish you had the notion that you were lovable back, which seems much, would, which would be much bigger, right, than him, right? Because it means you'll never be loved. By the way, you, you should go to a therapist, anonymous listener. This is um, right up a therapist alley. Um, the other conceptualization is that you're grieving early childhood losses or rejections, and you're just seeing the the face of those of that grief is your past ex. But in reality, when you're crying, you're really crying about a lifetime of rejection. The other possibility is that your suffering just gets focused on him. It sounds like you're suffering and you're crying at night. And it's possible that your mind just prefers to attach that suffering to him instead of uh, having it just sort of be amorphous. We do this all the time. When we have a pain in our chest, often for some people, they'll say, I'm having a heart attack, right? Uh, when you have a really, really bad headache, people will be like, I have a brain tumor. We do this all the time. It, it somehow feels better to us to have a concrete thing that's wrong with us. It's harder for us to just experience an amorphous suffering. And it's possible that, anonymous listener, you are experiencing an amorphous glob of suffering. And that doesn't feel good because it's like, well, I feel bad, but why? And the last bad thing you could really attach to is your ex-boyfriend from three years ago. And so you just sort of attach it to him when in reality, your suffering is just an amorphous blob that might be hard to decipher anyway. But I don't know. Obviously, I would talk with a therapist about that. All right. So I think that's pretty good. I think I got to all the different emails. Thanks, everyone, on the fan page. And thanks, Colin, for gathering all those questions. We're going to be doing this uh, sort of method, uh, I think, ongoing is when I get a topic like grief, I'm going to task Colin with going to the fan page, going to Discord and other places and, and gathering questions and you know suggestions so be on the lookout for that uh, maybe he'll go to instagram too i don't know youtube i don't know um but let's conclude with some general things about grief that i haven't covered um as i said in the last episode one way of thinking about the passing of time is the acquisition of grief and that it's normal and that our efforts to deny it or pathologize it or deal with it or cope with it, as people will say, to move on, try to move on from it is only creating suffering that's 10 times as greater as it needs to be. Life is suffering. When, when you are barefoot and you're walking across the living room and you step on a Lego and it hurts, what do you do? Well, you scream and you curse the existence of Legos or Lego. You 
sit down and you hold your foot and you you start pushing all the toys into the corner and and you say who left this late you know you do something you feel pain and it tells you something needs to happen kids better be picking up their legos there's a solution here i i feel pain and that is alerting me to something i need to take action here i'm feeling the pain and that's not going to go away cuz that ship has sailed <laughs> the lego has embedded itself into my the ball of my foot it's over i'm in pain that's just the way it's going to be but what is this pain telling me this pain is telling me i should probably wear slippers from now on and two kids better be picking up their toys from now on okay and everyone knows you're in pain if anyone was around you they'd be like ooh and when you step on that lego piece you don't say to yourself how do i cope with this how do i get rid of this pain why am i dwelling on this pain you don't do that right it's not a rational thing that's silly you feel the pain it's happening you can't get away from it it's human <laughs> you stepped on a lego it's going to hurt well when you lose someone and it hurts and it lasts it's just the way that it is. And there is no use trying to fight it. And sometimes you step on a Lego and sometimes a loved one dies. Sometimes someone dumps you. Sometimes you get fired from a job. And those things happen and I wish they didn't. I wish they didn't happen to me. I wish they didn't happen to my loved ones. I wish they didn't happen to you, but they do. Everyone steps on a Lego sometimes. And you're going to feel the pain. And it's and to fight it is to fight reality, and to fight it is to prolong the suffering or complicate it or make it worse. And our society does not understand that. Also, if you're around someone that just stepped on a Lego, don't shame them for having stepped on a Lego. And don't tell them they're, they're, blame, you know, they're, they're dwelling on their pain. They want to scream and yell about how much it hurts, you listen. There's nothing you're going to do to take away the pain, right? But you can listen. You can make the pain worse by turning away or by not paying attention or making it taboo or getting so in your head of just like, I don't know what to say. Maybe I should end with that. So you have a friend that experienced grief and there's all these ideas. And I've talked about this before, but you know, there's all these notions that there's all, you look on Facebook or Instagram, there's all these like little, I don't know, so let me tell you, oh, this might take me a bit of time. <laughs> so a common thing that happens as you're going through grief, as you're going through a loss, is people will do one of two things. One is, is they will just avoid you. And why are they avoiding you? Not because they're jerk faces. They're terrified because they don't know what to do. They're like, I don't know what to say. And so they just don't say anything. So that's one thing you'll see is people will just avoid you. You're like a leper. The other thing that people will do is they will say, they'll have these kind of very common responses. And these people are trying and they'll reach out and they'll, they'll, they'll say to you, I'm really sorry for your loss. I'm thinking about you. Let me know if you need, need anything. And it might be in longer form than that, but it'll be something along those lines. But that's all that they say. They, they don't go beyond that. The problem that's nice, that's a nice thing. The problem with that is that 
the person going through the loss, they probably get told that 150 times. They get told that by all their coworkers, everyone who says anything with good intention, the person is saying, I'm so sorry that you're, that you're going through this loss. Uh, you know, let me know if you need anything. I'm here for you. And when you hear that from 150 people, it all sounds the same and it all starts to sound insincere. So if you want to break through the noise, you got to go beyond that somehow. So there's nothing wrong with saying my condolences. I'm sorry for your loss. Let me know if you need anything. There's nothing wrong with that. But when they hear that 150 times, sometimes they'll get so fed up with it. Not because it's bad to say that to someone, but because they've heard it from so many people and it feels so empty because no one follows up with it, you know? And so that's when you get the tweets that people will say like, hey, my husband died. Enough with the thoughts and prayers. You know, you'll hear that. You know, stop saying thoughts and prayers. They'll say that. Well, thoughts and prayers is fine. There's nothing wrong with thoughts and prayers. The problem is, is for the, for the griever, that's all they hear from even people that should go beyond that. So, if, so here's what, and to go beyond that is, you know, there's infinite ways to go beyond that. But let me tell you some stories that I've seen. Is you write a, you write a card, but it's long form. And it's a handwritten card. And it goes into detail about your own experiences with grief and what you remember about the person. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, thoughts and prayers. I remember your brother, how great he was in this way. And I, when I, I lost my brother a few years back and here's what I went through. Everyone said thoughts and prayers and no one really paid attention. I want to, I want to let you know, I'm paying attention to you so that, you know, you're going beyond you're, you're self-disclosing, you're noticing. Another thing going beyond that I've heard, and, and you just have to gauge for yourself uh, what is going beyond. The other thing is, as you're gauging what's going beyond uh, the, the typical response for someone that you care about that's grieving, is ask them. Just ask the griever, like, hey, am I going, am I being too pushy? Do you, because I, I, I'm, I'm dedicated to you in this grief process. So, Uh, Do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? Um, I'm going to do this. You know, another thing is in the soon after the loss. So say like your friend's parents die or something. And if it's right after the loss, a lot of times what people need is you just have to, you just have to do things for them. So you drop off food, for example, or you just come by and you just hang out and watch television while they take care of things. You know, you're just there. Now, again, you have to check in with them and say, you know, cause you don't want to impose and make it annoying to them. But, but those are things I've seen. It's just like, you know what? I really appreciated it when you just dropped by a casserole, you know, you, you didn't just say if I need anything, you just brought over food because I was so, it was such a chaotic time. I, I didn't have time or the brain power to think about food. And I was just so happy that you just brought food. It was great. And we just sat and had, you know, McDonald's and we just talked about stuff. And, you know, that really meant something to me that you actually showed up. Okay. But I don't know what will help other people. Okay. So this is a, another thing that 
uh, might help people is, um, what are some other stories? Well, calling people, right? You, you call them up and you're just like, hey, you know, I'm just calling you up. How you doing? You don't have to talk to me if you don't have time. I'm, I just want to, I just want to see if you want to talk for, you know, some time. Do you want to talk on the phone for a bit? Or like I said, just stopping by, of course, it's lockdown right now. So it makes it harder. But um, anyway, there's an infinite number of other things you can do. But uh, these are some of the things you can do. If, if you want to help, then uh, think beyond the very typical responses is the point. Show the person that you really care. You know, it's one thing to care and to be concerned. It's another thing to really show like, I'm dedicated to you. You know, one of the things that people will say when they go through a loss is they will say after, you know, the dust settles, they'll, they'll say, wow, I really realized who were my actual friends and who were not. I realized those people in my life who actually cared about me and those people who just kind of cared about me. And a lot of times people are surprised. They'll say, you know, before the loss, I would have told you that these five people were my best friends. But after the loss, none of those people actually really showed up. And it was, it was these other three friends that showed up that I didn't really know were such great people. <laughs> and I will never forget that. And those five people that I thought were my best friends, yeah, I'm still friends with them. But these three people... I, we're like siblings now, these three people. These people showed me that they really care and that they get it. You know, you want to be one of those people, whatever that means. And that usually means dedication and repeat uh, communication that doesn't end after a month. That continues, you know, what, one of the greatest things you can, the greatest gifts you can give someone who is grieving is six months in, you just call them up or text them or something and just say like, hey, I was just thinking about you and your dad. How are things going? You know, just some acknowledgement. For so many people that are grieving, they feel like everyone one either doesn't want to talk about it or two doesn't even know what happened. Like it just, it just leaves their brain. And for you six months later to still have it on your mind and reaching out to them, even if they don't want to talk about it, they'll just be like, wow, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that person cared that much. That's a big deal to care that much. So the reason why I give all these kinds of stories is because, because we are so, death phobic and so grief phobic and so grief pathologizing our approach to people grieving is like i said either people will treat you like a leper because they're terrified of making a mistake or they'll do the very standard response and that's it and then the grievers end up yelling at everyone the grievers come out you know come out swinging at everyone they're just like you know, if I hear thoughts and prayers one more time, if I hear one more person say that they know how I feel, I'm going to throw up. So, but the problem, and then what people do is they see the grievers yelling that stuff, and then people are more afraid, and they're even more likely to treat other grievers like a leper. And, and I don't know if, am I being insensitive about people who suffer from leprosy? 
<laughs> Maybe I should change the metaphor there. Um, so the the thing here, I guess I'm talking about like the biblical lepers, not the act, you know, because don't people actually suffer from I mean, anyway? Um, so that's what's happening right now is either you're terrified and not doing enough, or even though you care. Or you're a griever and you're angry at everyone and you're one of those people potentially that's just yelling at everyone and saying like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear that. But none of this is really an accurate picture holistically of what's happening. What's happening is the griever is being generally neglected and they're irritable about the way they're being treated. And so if you take someone who's grieving and you really pay attention to them and they get enough support and enough attention that they deserve – when they hear thoughts and prayers, it won't bother them. When they hear someone say, I know how you feel. I lost someone last year too. It won't bother them because they're getting their needs met. It'll, it'll just be part of what they're being sort of exposed to. But when they're so neglected, the little bit of attention they get, it, it, you know, this is actually analogous to other situations that I, I find clinically where there'll be a family where or a couple, let's just say it's a couple where there's been a lot of conflict and for years they haven't really had a lot of vulnerability and love between the two of them. And then I'm working with the couple and let's say I get one of the partners to um, be nice, you know, and say like, Hey, let's cuddle. And then the other partner is at first appreciative, like, Oh, great. Finally, Finally, she's reaching out to me to cuddle. But, and then very quickly after that, what will happen with some people is all the feelings of hurt that they've been feeling for years of neglect from this person come flooding in. It's like they allow themselves to open up a little bit because they're being pursued. And then by opening up, they have to allow all these other feelings to come rushing in. And so, so, you know, the partner is saying, hey, let's cuddle. And then the other partner is saying, hey, that's great. And then all of a sudden they just get angry and they'll say like, oh, fine. Now you want to cuddle, you know, and they'll just get really upset. Well, when you approach, when people who are grieving get some acknowledgement, you know, these minuscule moments of acknowledgement for what they're going through, they open up a little bit. They're like, oh, finally someone's paying attention to my suffering in a way that I feel like I should get more of. Now I'm reminded of how little attention I've been getting and I'm going to get angry, you know, and then the griever ends up lashing out towards the people that are giving a little bit of attention. Not everyone, of course, but this happens. And we're now in this feedback loop where that just causes people to be more more afraid to help people who are grieving and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So the answer is go above and beyond. Think about it like in our fragmented society, think about it like if we were cave people. If, you know, Zog dies and Zog's uh, parents are sitting right there, well you're with them all the time. You're you're sitting around the fire uh, you know, and you're gathering berries along with Zog's parents. So there's, you're just with them all the time. And as feelings come up, as memories come up, you know, it just some comes spouting out of your mouth, this kind of thing. Well, 
when it comes to our fragmented society, you you want to somehow create that social environment as best you can, which means contact, communication, questions, opportunity, you know, that's what, that's the model to follow. Make the person feel like you're open to whatever they're, whatever they're experiencing. Here's the other point. Remember I was talking about the oscillation between the grieving and the rebuilding. Don't assume, you know, which mode they're in. Don't assume that they want to grieve is kind of my point is maybe they want to rebuild. Maybe they want to go out with you and have a good time. Maybe that's what they want to do. Maybe they just want to laugh. And so maybe you're just there gauging which mode they want you to be for them and know that that's okay. Just follow their lead on that anyway, or you can just ask them, you know, one of the things that I do with people who are grieving is I teach them the dual mode process, the dual process mode. And so that they can know themselves how to gauge where they want to go. So if you are, if you know someone that's grieving, particularly they're close to you, uh, teach them the dual process. If they don't know about it, say, Hey, I listened to this dumb guy on the internet talk about dual process. Um, and he talks about oscillation between these two modes. I don't know if that applies to you, but maybe that little tidbit can help. And know that I'm here for either mode. If you want me to grieve, I'm here to, I'm here with you to grieve. If you want to rebuild and you just want to hang out and do something fun or forget about the grief for a little bit, forget about the loss for a little bit, I'm here for you there as well. You might even develop a little language with that person. Hey, which mode are you? What do you want to do tonight? Do you want to grieve or you want to rebuild? Just make it, just make it real. Don't make it taboo. People who are grieving are not contagious, <laughs> you know? Uh, they're your people and it's important that we're there for them. And if you want to think selfishly, which I don't recommend, if you're there for them, then they'll be there for you usually, hopefully. Let's all be there for each other. Why? Because we deserve it. We really, really do. 